Lord God, Heavenly Father, we rejoice this day that as your Son prayed that we might be one, so we are. Not by any effort on our behalf or any intellect or any thinking or or working on our behalf, but simply because your Spirit makes us one in our baptism, makes us one in our faith, and most of all makes us one in our Savior Jesus Christ. So keep us in the one true faith. And we ask you this morning that as we study your word in John, that we might be united in Christ through the spirit of truth that leads us into that truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so John chapter 3, we started a couple weeks ago. Last week we did a lot of work on Tanzania and and the Ascension. Um, But this week, we're actually going to read the text. So John 3, let's just read it, verses 1 through 15. Okay, thank you very much. Um, quite familiar text in a lot of ways. We talk about it a lot as Lutherans. So we'll get to it. Uh, number one, how does Nicodemus interpret Jesus? So we've, we've already gone over the kind of the beginning of this passage. Remember who Nicodemus Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Um, he's a very important Pharisee. He's apparently the teacher of the Pharisees or something like that, he's, but he's very prominent. His name means conqueror of the people or people's conqueror or people's champion, something like that. So he's a very important guy. So they have this discussion at night. So how does Nicodemus interpret Jesus? From God. He says he's a teacher from God, right? He says, you're a teacher from God because you do these signs that no one can do unless God is with him, which is really interesting. And then Jesus says something, and what does Nicodemus do? How does he interpret him? Yeah, not from God, but from from earth. That's what Jesus says. You're speaking of earthly things. You don't understand these things. So what happens is, even though Nicodemus sees Jesus as, as being a teacher from God because of his miracles, when Jesus speaks, Nicodemus interprets him very, very much from earth. He says, you must be born anothen which the Greek word anothen means either above or again. It's the exact same word with two meanings. 
Okay? And Nicodemus chooses to interpret the word as again. And then he goes crazy. And he's like, you don't make any sense, Jesus. How can you crawl inside your mother's womb and be born again? Which is really quite silly to assume that Jesus is teaching that. Okay? But that's what he does. Scott? I'm going to rise to defense. Please do. Uh, imagine you've never heard this before. Right. And suddenly someone says this to you. I would probably, I would probably interpret the word as, as above instead of again. Maybe. Right. But I think a lot of people would go, what in the world? Well, sure. Good. So this is a good point. So so what you just said, I don't know how to write it on the board. I don't want to write, actually don't want to write that on the board. What in the world are you talking about? This is the predominant effect that Jesus' words have on everybody throughout the Gospels. They go, I have no idea what you just said. Okay. Right? We believe that we should listen to you for some reason, but we have no idea what you're talking about. This is really, really important to understand. Nobody understands Jesus when he talks. This is one of the main themes in all four Gospels. Is Jesus is walking around saying these things and people are going, okay, I guess, I don't know. Right? The Pharisees know that they're spe- he's speaking against them. They know that. It says it over and over and over. The Pharisees were upset because they knew they were speaking, he was speaking against them, but they didn't understand how. They were like, okay, I know you're mad at us, but I don't really get what you're saying. The disciples never understand Jesus' words. Ever. Jesus is walking around saying, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die. And then three days I'll rise again. And they're like, okay, Whatever. And then he goes to Jerusalem and he dies and they go, we didn't see that coming. And then he rises from the dead and they're like, you girls are just making stuff up. We've never heard of this rising from the dead thing. But we read the Gospels and we're like, Mark 8.31, Mark 9.31, and Mark 10.35, Jesus said, I'm going to go die and three days later rise again. How did you not get this? But you've got to remember, they had no context for understanding resurrection from the dead, meaning literally get up and walk out of the tomb. They thought resurrection of the dead was some kind of metaphor, right? For yeah, whatever. So, so a lot of Jesus' words, this actually happens. Jesus speaks and people do not understand a word he's saying. So they just, they guess. Show, the next miracle. Yeah, but Nicodemus isn't at this point. He's actually seems to be coming, trying to figure this out. I mean, he comes to Jesus at night alone to ask him questions. But so, about yeah, through his ministry, they're just looking to see yeah, if he can do more. Listen to what he's saying, and He's doing cool stuff. Yeah, and he says good things. I mean, we like what he says in general. He feeds people, and then he talks about love. But don't we kind of do the same thing now? We encourage children and people who don't understand, just come and sit. Right. Come and listen. Come and listen. It doesn't have to make sense right now. Right. So if you guys open the Bible and read it, how much do you actually understand of it? Very little. Right? Let's be honest. Most of it is just crazy stuff. You're like, I don't know how that connects, but it's in the Bible, so I know I should believe it. Okay? So this is actually the point, is that when... 
when you read the entire Bible through the death and resurrection of Jesus, that's when it starts making sense. That's when you start understanding how to read the sacred text. The problem is Nicodemus isn't thinking this, right? He's not thinking this. Why? It hasn't happened yet. Happened yet. So what is Jesus going to end up teaching? This. This is actually what he ends up teaching Nicodemus. Because he says, well, here's how, you, here's how you, you're born above, above again, whatever. Right? And Nicodemus is like, that doesn't make any sense. And so Jesus says, of course it doesn't make any sense. And then he says, but this is the important thing, is that the Son of Man will be lifted up just like Moses lifted up the serpent. And through that lifting up, eternal life will come to all people. Now, Nicodemus appears again at the trial of Jesus, and he says, I don't think he's guilty of anything. We shouldn't kill him. And then he appears again after Jesus is dead, and he buries the body of Jesus. So Nicodemus actually believes this, right? The Spirit works through this teaching of Jesus, and Nicodemus actually believes it enough to be a secret disciple of Jesus. You said that the disciples really didn't believe that that was all going to happen to Jesus, but didn't they witness the rising of Lazarus? Yeah, well, they should have gotten it. I mean, they saw lots of rays. I mean, they're, they're hanging out. They're going to Nain for whatever reason, because, you know, we're just going to Nain for fun, I guess. And Jesus stops the funeral procession and raises the little kid, like literally. He's in a coffin. He says, get up. And he gets up and gives him back to his mom, right? They go to Jairus' daughter, and Peter, James, and John see that one, but I'm sure they told the other disciples, right? I mean, so the disciples knew of this resurrection <laughs> from the dead, but but... Read the Gospels. I'm not making this up. None of the disciples believe this is going to happen to Jesus. When the women come back and say, hey, he's not in the tomb, the disciples are like, you're crazy. He's dead. Right? That's actually their reaction. And even when John and Peter go to the tomb, they still don't understand what's going on. They're like, yeah, it's empty. I don't know. Okay? So this is actually really weird is that none of the disciples believe that Jesus is going to rise even though he told them. So this, it takes the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus and the Holy Spirit to teach them to look back on Jesus' words and go, oh, he did tell us he was going to rise from the dead. He meant like actually rise from the dead. Yeah? This is the whole point of 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul is saying this whole resurrection of the dead thing, it's not a metaphor. We mean actual Resurrection. Yeah? Does that make sense? I mean, this is, this is part of the problem is, is we are always reading Scripture and interpreting it as either too metaphorical or too literal. We're always messing it up one way or the other. And it's, it's this that grounds our interpretation. We don't, want, we don't want to read the Bible literally. You don't want to read the Bible literally. You don't want to read it symbolically. You want to read it Christologically. Focused on Jesus. Right? Yeah? That's what Jesus tells us in Luke 24. All the scriptures are written about me. In John 5, all the scriptures are written about me. That's what Jesus tells us to do. We, we want to read the Bible focused on Jesus and the most important thing about Jesus is his death and resurrection. So when someone says, do you read the Bible literally? You go, I don't know. Do you read it metaphorically? I don't know. How do you read it? About Jesus? 
I read it focused on Christ. That's how I read it. How do we find, define born in biblical? <sighs> so this, the Greek word for born in this passage is actually a word that's used of both male and female in their role of the birth process. So this is the way for a male to beget somebody. It's this verb. So if you impregnate a woman, that is the act of this verb from a male point of view. And it also, it's also the physical act of giving birth by the female is the same word. So someone that is born, meaning this, this would have referred to both their mother and their father's actions in that process. But you're just changing location from, from a womb to outside the womb, and we're changing location again, being born again from yeah. this life. Yeah, so, so the question is, why is Jesus using the metaphor of birth? Which is really strange. Like, so, so let's look at, let's just look at, we're never going to number two, this is the problem. Just look at the, the problem. So, so Nicodemus is walking along and he, and he comes to Jesus by night and he says to him, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher from God for no one can do the, thing, the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus says, thanks, I'm glad you noticed. No, what does he say? I tell you, no one is born again unless you cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus didn't ask him to explain anything. Nicodemus didn't ask a question about the kingdom of God. He didn't say, how can I see or how can we be born again? Why is Jesus saying this? See, this is why Nicodemus is totally lost. He walks up and he's like, hey, I think you're great and I think you're from God. And Jesus goes, you can't, be, you can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. What? What are you talking about? See, that's the problem is Jesus flips the conversation on Nicodemus. He has no idea why. That's why he's lost. So Nicodemus is lost in this world of, that doesn't make any sense. I don't know what you're talking about. Weren't the Pharisees also like teachers and they were very legalistic about the way things were? Yeah. And Jesus actually calls Nicodemus the teacher of Israel. So there's something about this where he is engaging his role as the teacher of Israel. And we'll get there in a second. Okay. So yeah, this is very much in line with all of that. So number two, who allows people to see? The Holy Spirit. This is so important in the gospel that you, you cannot see in order to believe. You don't see to believe. That's wrong. You believe in order to see. You have to believe in order to see. And the only way you believe is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Okay, so if you want to see, you've got to see with the eyes of faith. This is the plot of the gospel of Mark and the gospel of John. They have similar plots in this. Is that everyone's walking around trying to see whether or not Jesus is Messiah. They can't do that. No, nothing that your eyes see will ever be true. It's only what the Holy Spirit teaches you to see that's true. Okay. This guy, he's just a normal looking guy, claims to be God. Well, you don't look much like God. Right? 
I mean, what does Isaiah say? There's nothing about his physical appearance that would draw us to him. So it's not, he's not walking around and painting, shining with a halo, right? There's nothing about Jesus that anybody would pick him out of the crowd and say, you kind of look like God. No, it's the opposite. Everyone looks at Jesus and they're like, you can't be God. You're just like us. You got a mom and a dad and brothers and sisters. You get tired. You go to the bathroom. You have to eat. You have hair. You have arms and legs. There's things you don't know. How dare you claim to be God? And Jesus says, Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. What does Thomas confess at the end of the gospel? He says, My Lord and my God. Who's he looking at? A man. I, the Lord, am not a man. That's what God says in the Old Testament. And yet Thomas looks at a man and calls him Yahweh. Well, how would he do that? By the power of the Holy Spirit. How in the world do we as a church, this is, the sermon was all about this this morning, how in the world do we say this book are the words of God? This book is true. No errors, inspired by God. How do we say that? People look at us and say, you're crazy. It's just another old book. It's not even that great of an old book. We have other old books that are older and more fun to read. We have other books that claim to be the word of God. We have other books that are scripture. Other books in weird languages have been translated. We have other books, right? Why in the world do you guys fixate on this one and say it's the word of God? And we're tempted to give all kinds of reasons. But you know what? None of those reasons will ever help. Because the only way to believe the Bible is the word of God is through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how you get eyes to see. Does that make sense? You guys are looking at me like I'm from Mars. I might be, but... Or the power of the unholy spirit in the belief of the Quran. Right, so then what's happening, and remember, 1 John... Okay, so let's go to 1 John. I've showed you guys this before, but this is always a fun thing. Whenever you think about the Holy Spirit, Tom... I mean, any of you who would talk about the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Go to 1 John. Actually, it's in the beginning of 4. 1 John chapter 4. The first couple of verses. <clears throat> because we get all caught up in the Holy Spirit, but remember, there are other spirits. Right? There are other spirits out there. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now that's an important move. How do you know the presence of a spirit? By a prophet. Listen to what people say and question what spirit is driving them to say it. That's what John is saying. Right? By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And listen to this. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Right? 
So if there's somebody out there talking religiously but not confessing Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God, coming to the flesh, the spirit that is driving them to speak is not from God. Which means, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, it's a demon. So Islam is from who? What's that? A demon or Satan. Right? That's actually what we're saying. Any religion that isn't confessing that, well, oops, other slide. That is not from God. That's what the New Testament teaches. Very plainly. We just had a, yeah, I'll just try to go back to John 3. How, you know, we get caught up on the born again thing. Uh-huh. But Jesus drives to the cross in the end. And, right. And exactly. And a doctrinal statement about baptism. Exactly. You know, all this stuff that they could be, you know, it's just like. What? What is all this for? Right, which is which is what you just said is so important is is and we do this a lot when we go to talk to other people about what Lutherans are. We'll talk about baptism and the Lord's Supper, and we'll talk about liturgy, and, and they're kind of going, eh, "Don't do that! Don't do that! What's a Lutheran?" The most important thing you can tell any of this world about Lutherans is that we're focused on Jesus. The death and resurrection of Jesus. That's who we are. That's the most important thing. Right? Now, baptism, Lord's Supper, liturgy, it all plays a role in there. But that's not the most important thing to tell people. We're, we're for infant baptism. Why? Who cares? Right? Infant baptism without the death and resurrection of Jesus is nothing. We, we can't skip the most important step, which is we believe in Jesus. To be God in the flesh, death and resurrection as the salvation of the world, and that is given to us freely by grace. That's what a Lutheran is. And if they say, I believe that too, you say, great, you might be a Lutheran. Let's check. And now we can ask them how they feel about things and, and we can actually find out really quickly if they are consistent in their belief or if they've changed, all of a sudden taken a left turn somewhere. And you're like, how did you get there? Right? And that's when you can discuss things like baptism, Lord's Supper, liturgy, other issues. But, but the most important thing that people need to know about us is that we love Jesus and he loves us. Right? Most importantly, he loves us. We love him back. Right? Does that make sense? Because, Steve, what you just said is so important. It's like, what? But you got to drive it to the cross. You got to get to the cross. Okay? So, number three, why doesn't Nicodemus understand? So, in, in verse 10, Jesus says, You are the teacher of Israel. Now, that could be actually an official title. There actually is good evidence that that's actually an official title that Nicodemus was in the role of the teacher of Israel. Like he was the most, he, that was his job. It might just be a phrase, but it also could be a title. Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. 
but you do not receive our testimony. I've told you earthly things you do not believe. How can you believe I tell you heavenly things? Okay? So, why doesn't Nicodemus understand? The Holy Spirit hasn't shown him yet. Okay, good. The Holy Spirit hasn't shown him yet. What else? He's using his eyes. Yes, he is using his eyes. And what is he seeing? Yeah, just another guy. He's not seeing the world through the death and resurrection of Jesus. I don't know how else to say it. He is not yet seeing the world through the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is still happening to this very day. People will read the Old Testament and say, well, this is what it says, and therefore this is what it must mean. And we look at them and go, I agree that's what it says, I agree it's the word of God, but I do not think that's what it means. And they're like, how could you not? And you're like, well, because the death and resurrection of Jesus actually changes everything. Right? It changes everything. The Ten Commandments. You know that God actually says, if you want to be saved, you have to keep my commandments? He actually says that over and over and over again. So people will say, well, see, in the Old Testament, it says that you have to keep these commandments in order to be saved. Therefore, we are saved by our own works. And we go, yeah, I know it says that, but no. Wrong conclusion. And they say, well, how can you do that? And you say, well, because Martin Luther made up grace and I like being lazy instead of working hard. <laughs> no. It's not because we found an escape clause where we don't have to work hard to earn our salvation. Why is it not by works? Doing that. Yeah, that's nice, but that's that. God doesn't give in to my incapabilities. Why is it not by works? Well, it is by works, but only. Christ Don't be afraid to say it. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Well, what do you mean, Roger? Christ is the one who can do the work. Right, because the commandments were kept. Right, righteousness before God. Done. And the amazing good news is he gives it to you. He gives it to you. Because I can't do it, so God says, I'll do it for you. I'll give it to you. Right? See, that's the gospel. It's not that God no longer wants us to see his commandments or God doesn't care what we do anymore. That's not true at all. The point is, is that all of this was done by Jesus. That's the gospel. And now that Jesus has, has died on a cross and been raised on the third day, everything changes. Nicodemus isn't seeing that yet. He's like, I, I, don't, I don't get what you're saying. You got spirit, you got water. What does that mean to an Old Testament believer? You got spirit, you got water. What are you thinking? Creation. Creation. The spirit hovered over the depths. And Nicodemus is like, okay, I get spirit and water, but what does that have to do with man being born? So now he's thinking about Adam being born from the earth. But Jesus is saying, born from above. And he's saying, well, if you're going to be born of the earth like Adam, then you're simply a child of the earth. But if you're born from, from the spirit, then you're a child of the heavens. And Nicodemus is like, okay, what are you talking about? And then Jesus says, well, what I'm really talking about is that the Son of Man will be lifted up, right? Not on the earth, but lifted up. Just like Moses lifted up 
See, Moses, the author of Genesis, lifted up the snake in the wilderness, and all people will be saved, just like they were through the snake that was lifted up off the earth that saved them from the snakes. Snakes. Did you get this? Are you getting all this? Snakes. What deceived Adam? His wife. What deceived Eve? Snake. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness because snakes were killing people. Right? So all these illusions that, that Nicodemus would have gotten because he's a Pharisee and he had all these texts memorized, he would have gotten all these illusions. And Jesus is saying, all of this is actually going to be fulfilled when the Son of Man is lifted up on a cross. And then Nicodemus sees it happen. Right? He sees it happen. And for some reason, he believes enough to go bury Jesus. Okay? Does that make sense? So Jesus is kind of bringing him along. And same thing we need to do. So number four, how did Jesus tell him about earthly things? What is he saying? He says, I have told you of earthly things you do not believe. How can you believe I tell you heavenly things? Uh huh. Good. He's using illustrations from this life. We all know this. Which again, don't miss that spirit and wind are the same word. This is why Jesus uses this illusion because spirit and wind are the exact same word in, in Hebrew. So the spirit and the wind are the same thing, which is really weird. Okay, what else? Yes, very good. So, so what Jesus is kind of doing is he's saying, I'm showing you where God comes down. And in this case, he's talking about which sacrament? Baptism. He's saying, I've explained to you how God meets you in your world by water and the spirit. And you had no idea what I was talking about. No idea. How are you going to understand if we're talking about heavenly things in which you have no grounding for understanding? You guys do understand this, right? God uses metaphor all the time. The entire Bible is metaphor. I know that freaks you out. It's okay. It's okay. It's still true. Metaphor is not untrue. What does a metaphor do? A metaphor is a, is a basic comparison between two things, right? Or more things. What is a metaphor based on? How do you use an effective metaphor? Why? It enhances understanding by comparing something you don't understand to something you do understand. Right? If I don't understand the thing that you're using as metaphorical, then the, the comparison doesn't make any sense. Right? If I say the traffic on 141 because of the brilliant construction that's going on both 44 and 141 on the same day, was just as bad as it was in Shinyanga, Tanzania. That doesn't do any of you any good because you've never been to Shinyanga. That's a bad metaphor. Right? See, a metaphor actually takes something that you experience and understand and says, I'm going to compare to that. 
Where Jesus is saying, I've been trying to do that, and you don't even understand the stuff you're supposed to understand. How are you going to understand the stuff that is beyond your understanding? I try to use the metaphor of birth, which, which every human at some point has experienced, right? And you didn't even get it. I use water. You don't get it. How are you going to understand when I speak to you of heavenly things? The most basic thing on earth is water. And what is the thing that, that people cannot wrap their minds around in our society within the church? This is the biggest issue between American Christianity and conservative Christianity as terms of actual doctrine. Infant baptism. They say, this is crazy. And we go, how is it crazy that God would use water to save? Well, it's not possible. God can't use means to save people. And we're like, have you not read the Bible? He does this all the time, right? God is always using means to save people. Always. As a matter of fact, he never saves people apart from means. But people can't get this. They get so freaked out. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is, I've been talking about earthly things and you don't even get that. How do you think you're going to survive when you get on the earth heavenly things? How? What is the most basic and yet essential metaphor in the entire Bible? What's that? Yeah, that's, that's a pervasive one, but even more basic than that. Every one of you are doing it right now. Yeah, that's nice. More basic than that. It precedes faith. It's the incarnation of Jesus Christ. God becomes man. If you didn't understand these heavenly things, guess what God's going to do? He's going to become man. Right? That's the movement. Is that all of this talk is showing that God comes to us, not just in baptism, not just in the Lord's Supper, not just in his word, but he actually comes to us in the person of Jesus. That's actually where God is. You want to know God? Look at Jesus. You want to understand what God wants to say to you? Read the words of Jesus. We're all driving around looking for signs. Well, the light turned green. I got there in time. Therefore, God's on my side. <laughs> Strange conception of God you've got there. You want to know what God thinks? Read the Bible. The words all about Jesus. That's where God is. That's where you find him. That's where all of this heavenly stuff that we can't comprehend is grounded in a reality we can comprehend. Do you understand what it's like to be human? Do you know what it's like to be hungry? Do you know what it's like to be thirsty? Do you know what it's like to doubt? Do you know what it's like to say to God, where are you? Why aren't you listening to my prayer? Do you know what that's like? Read about Jesus because he did the exact same things. Do you know what it's like to have a friend die? Read about Jesus. He wept. God in the flesh, salvation of the world, 
we're not just walking around talking about stuff that doesn't make any sense. We're not just walking around with what strange spaghetti monsters in the sky. Isn't that what Richard Dawkins called him? No, that's not our God. Our God has flesh and bones. Our, our God breathes and dies. Our God rises from the dead. He has flesh. It's like you have flesh. And that's what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. He's saying all this heavenly stuff and this earthly stuff, it's going to meet together in me. Baptism, Lord's Supper, power of the word, justification by grace through faith. Any doctrine you want to come up with, it's Jesus. It's in him. And that's what he's getting Nicodemus to say. So number five, who is the son of man? Oh boy, we're we're running out of time. So number five, who is the son of man? We got to get this. So, So in verse 14, and just as, well, in 13 too. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Son of Man, this is just, we'll get to this um, in two weeks. Because I'm going to Kansas next week. I don't know who's going to teach. Son of Man is a title that Jesus uses for himself. He's the only person that calls him the Son of Man except for in Acts chapter 7 verse 56. When Stephen says, I see the Son of Man sitting in the right hand of God. Every other time Son of Man is used in the New Testament, it is Jesus calling himself the Son of Man. Now, this is Jesus' favorite title for himself when he's talking about his suffering. Okay, this is Jesus' favorite way to describe himself in terms of his suffering. So this is usually pointed to his death. Now, Son of Man is actually an Old Testament title that was used of the prophets. It's used 96 times in the book of Ezekiel to describe Ezekiel the prophet. It was used to describe son of man also just meant human beings, which is really important. Also in Daniel chapter 7, in the keep in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, now this is important, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in Daniel chapter 7, the son of man is God. The Hebrew says he's one alongside God. And remind me a couple weeks to talk about why that's important. But in Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man, who is in heavens with God, or is God himself, he is the judge at the in the last day. He's the one that will come on clouds with the power of heaven to judge the world. That's who the Son of Man is. And every Jew knew that. So when Jesus claims to be the Son of Man, who do you think you are? The Son of Man, who is the judge, that's one of the primary roles of Messiah. Messiah will come and judge the world. And Jesus is claiming by using this title that he is Messiah. So when you say Jesus is prophet, priest, and king, prophet, son of man. Okay? Priest, we read it today in John 17, the high priestly prayer. He prays for his people. King, anointed Messiah, right? Christ, that's a kingly title, just like David. Okay? So this is one of those major titles that Jesus uses for himself that actually got him in a lot of trouble. Because people say, if you're claiming to be the Son of Man, the Son of Man, not just a Son of Man, but the Son of Man, you're claiming to be Messiah, you're claiming to be God, you're claiming to be judge of the world, we will kill you. And he said, 
Yes, you will. But in three days, I will rise. And then you will know that I am who I claim to be. Right? So he does. Okay. If you have any questions, you can ask me afterwards. Uh, the rest of you got to get to church. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ, for we do not understand you. We don't even understand your word. But we know in Christ that all things are leading us to your mercy, your steadfast love for us, your forgiveness, your kindness, and your grace. So teach us to live our lives in light of Christ, that we might be children of the light, united in the truth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you all.